1: Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Urban Studies. Uh, my name is Peter Christian Agner, your host, and today uh, we have the pleasure of talking with Carl Nightingale about his new book, Segregation, A Global History of Divided Cities. Carl, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. The book is a monumental feat, hugely ambitious. Why don't you tell us about how you came to the project and a little bit about yourself?
0: I grew up in the United States, and when you grew up in the United States, you're keenly aware of the color line in cities. Um, I was especially keenly aware of it because uh, I grew up, well, in the suburbs, I grew up on a college campus in faculty housing, and my backyard uh, ended at a fence. Beyond the fence was a little neighborhood um, that was 100% African American, mostly uh, the, the parents and families of people who uh, worked in large houses um, on the other side of the tracks, really? the classic uh, designation of our, the color line. Um, and I... Well, the, the fence was always a curiosity, and the, the, the fact that the, the the that um you know the, the color line was so clear uh, always brought up uh, questions for me as I was growing up. And uh, the obvious ones are there: why was I in a big house on one side, and they were living in the small houses on the other side? Why uh, was the fence there? Of course. Why did um why did it why, why did it seem like um there there was such a uh, so so much uh, racial inequality? And, um, over while well, I didn't, I, mean, I can't say that the fence immediately created this book. It certainly created the questions, um, that have been, uh, that been center, center at the heart of it, which is basically why, why do these things exist? And why is there inequality at the same time? So, right. You had written your first book was on the subject as well, right? My first book was on, um, the lives of kids growing up in what we then called inner city uh, neighborhoods or, um, neighborhoods of Philadelphia and that, that did allow me to kind of go across the fence and actually live on the other side for six years or so and uh, get to know a lot of young people and all the struggles that they went through um, contending with this this, this huge uh, this huge gap in our society
1: yeah um, well it's certainly uh, a sadly enduring uh, subject of interest um, Uh, Now, most uh, scholars have sort of studied segregation and isolation. What's, um, you know, stand out about this book is you take a a really global approach. Um, You argue that coercive segregation spread around the world because it was interconnected, that intellectual networks, governments, businesses were crucial to the rise of of the West uh, in the modern era and therefore crucial to the spread of segregation. Um, Can you, uh, so... Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, um, the, the, the argument of the book is that unfortunately segregation has been with us really since the beginning of cities. I, I often quip that it's the original sin of urban planning because it actually goes back to ancient times when the first uh, the first uh, you know settlements that we really are unified on uh, unified about as uh, calling cities the big cities of Sumer and uh, southern Mesopotamia. And even the ones in ornament, came were all based on the idea that um, that uh, of, of spatial inequality, that, that and that spatial inequality could um, help hierarchical societies and help people in power to uh, extend their power, to uh, control resources, um, and to and to um, yeah, and to and to basically uh, control the of the ideas of the society. So monumental. Architecture was all about creating the idea of, um, of divine right, authoritarian um, monarchs, and they, they essentially created a place for the gods or the god kings. Um, it was above and above the, the uh, and, and elevated in a kind of uh, celebratory way above the, uh, the masses of people who lived in the dustier wards below. Uh, that that general idea is not. Has been implemented in various different ways, even in Mesopotamia, in various different ways. But over the years, uh, over the centuries, and millennia since, um, various different uh, configurations. And one of the amazing things about segregation is that it's uh, that it's been able to persist, in part, because um, it takes so many different forms. That uh, sort of divine versus mortal form is only one. But cities in, from the very beginning have also defined cities versus the countryside, for example, by using walls and other monumental architecture. They've also um, had places in them for people who were from far away, the strangers versus the locals. That's another really key and very ancient form of, of segregation um, that was often used by the rulers to keep in control because they could always use the, the the foreigners as scapegoats if they were and especially if they were spatially concentrated, um, make them into targets of uh, local violence and so on. Riots against foreigners are a common theme all the way out through through urban history, and segregation helped that happen. The worst version of that kind of nasty trick was the was the Jewish ghettos of the medieval Europe, where um, where Jews were set aside, and as opposed to being expelled from the city, um, often because they were useful to the local regime to kind of control control society. Um, but none of those systems before this period involved the question of race. Race is a relatively modern idea. Um, it's an idea it comes. The word itself is from medieval, but uh, it didn't really come into political prominence until the early the 18th century. And um, but it was racial segregation that became the most important form of segregation for the uh, expanding West. It was. It was- by means of creating and propagating segregated cities by color and race that the big empires of the modern era uh, Britain, France, and and the United States especially were uh, in part able to um, to, to expand. It was a very important tool in their their kit uh, for expanding uh, expanding their influence. So how did they do it? Yes, uh, you mentioned three things that are very important. Governments. Uh, Obviously these are the empires. The empires Had a stake in these cities, um, uh, both in terms for for everything that cities are are good for, um, but they also, you know, they had had a stake in these cities, um, promoting their rule. And one way they could do that was to to create these separate separate towns. Uh, The idea of white towns and black towns came up um, first in 1700. It was based on a kind of a, a format that already existed among colonial cities. European colonial cities in Asia, and to some degree in the United in the uh, in the Americas as well, where a, an empire would come with its officials, merchants, whoever they were, and they would set up in one section of the town that was superior to the rest of the town, and uh, kind of use that superior perch to kind of give justification to their presence and their and their dominance. Um, but uh, they weren't they weren't called white town and black town until 1700 and that was kind of the beginning of this idea that that color could be the main form of separation so governments were very involved in that and they, and they kind of invented this idea for a whole variety of in a, in a, in a very uh, due to a couple of very complicated circumstances that we can talk about later um the other important people uh, as time went on were um various kinds of professional intellectuals um who uh, experts, urban reformers, people who developed increasing ties with each other across the world and who were interested in segregation for a whole variety of reasons, starting with public health, um, moving on to housing issues, um, moving on to just kind of the general idea of urban planning. Um, and uh, each, each, in turn, um, found reasons for, for segregation to be um, a, a critical component of how a city was laid out. So this is racial segregation. And then, uh, finally, there's the, the real estate industry, which in some ways was a little bit of a um, – uh, um, uh, it was never really a, um, a fundamental uh, – you know, it, it could never always uh, – you never quite count on the real estate industry in, in, in many cases because on the one hand, um, there was this the, – the real estate industry came with all kinds of tools – with which to, to divide cities, including things like restrictive covenants, land use covenants, and so on, um, from very early on in the uh, 18th century. Uh, on the other hand, it also came with the idea of, um, of private property rights, and that meant that if, if you created a segregated city in, say, Asia or Africa, and there were many uh, wealthier African nations living in that city, uh, they had the right to buy Anywhere, and that meant that sometimes the, the white town black town border would actually be uh, a little bit less um, strict than the than the authorities would have liked. On the other hand, they really couldn't fight back against it a lot of times because the um, they depended on these African and or Asian elites uh, to to be uh, loyal, and they depended on that loyalty to keep their <laughs> empire in place. So it was, uh, segregation often was a little bit tricky for them to implement, um, and so many colonial cities, while there's a kind of Legal idea that there should be divided, or a kind of uh, official idea that they should be divided. The the reality is not always exactly as 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 the as the ruling um, regime would like. So there's the that's the three big institutions to start off with that that, uh, really created the modern form of segregation.
1: Yeah, there's this a popular impression out there. I think that segregation is sort of ancient. you know even by talking about Mesopotamia these things the the idea is that uh we make a point in the introduction people will will distinguish between voluntary or de facto segregation and de jure segregation but you're in this global context you're arguing that that really there's often no big difference between those two things
0: that's right i think the uh the distinction between voluntary segregation and involuntary one um it's often the the main The main thing that people have in their mind is that okay people come into a city they come from a, a similar place out from you know, some similar place elsewhere. Uh, they have a similar language and they have a similar culture and it differs from the place that they've come to, so they gather together and they uh, form uh, you know what 's called an entry neighborhood, a vestibule neighborhood, a port of entry, what do you want to call it and um that this is an okay way of segregating because they've chosen that form. Um, there are a couple issues with that, uh, and probably to go to the basic um, distinction between what's segregated and what's not, which is a, which I think is a kind of a not an easy thing to really um, to really work out. Um, but the main thing is that first of all, voluntary segregation. Uh, I mean, forced segregation is in some sense voluntary segregation. When when you create forced segregate, when somebody forces segregation on a city, they want to do it. They have the power to do it, and um, they end up doing it. And and so that's as voluntary as it gets. Uh, so, to just call all voluntary segregation good um, loses the fact that all segregation is has a voluntary element to it, um, and especially the, the worst kinds. Um, the second thing is that um, when and ethnic, group, ethnic groups do kind of coalesce. First of all, uh, they, they may have the power to actually come together and, and join close, live close by, but they don't necessarily and often don't actually have very much power to exclude others. And so um, unlike what we, what we classically think of as forced segregation, they, uh, these ethnic neighborhoods are often, you know, they may predominate, say, Polish or Italian and they have thirty percent forty percent but uh, there's six, there's still sixty or seventy percent of people who are um, you know not polish and not Italian in those neighborhoods and you know it's not even clear that that um, that's the main goal of these, um, these ethnic concentrations just to exclude other people ironically in the United States uh, well not ironically it, it sort of proves the point that in the United States um, it wasn't until the federal government and and the uh, real estate industry and, and reformers, the three big institutions, got together to create um, a system of segregation that privileged whites that um, white ethnic groups were actually able to, to keep blacks out of their neighborhood. Uh, was before that, they, uh, the, those neighborhoods had um, sub, you know substantial populations of African Americans spread across the, the city. So uh, it really took um, a, a very serious um, and very much voluntary. Mm-hmm. It was, it was something that people wanted, and it was something that people had power to do, and it was something that people actually uh, believed in and then actually implemented. That, to me, is the definition of voluntary segregation. And that system uh, is is the, is the fourth system that uh, ultimately created
1: our black-white divides. Right. So we, we've, we've already talked a little bit about or hinted that intellectuals play a, a key role here. But among these three groups that we've started with, uh, you argue that governments are the most important, right? That uh, You've hinted at this, and we can talk more about this later, but um, there are some scholars who argue since uh, the rise of segregation takes uh, place against the backdrop of these much larger developments of so the rise of the West and the rise of capitalism mm-hmm. those other things, that markets or market capitalism, real estate, so other things are are uh, key uh, vectors for segregation. But you, you argue that actually… Um, these, the color lines thats set up by real estate agents and other other industries are often porous um, uh, intentionally and not mm-hmm. that it's that it is neither capitalism by function is neither colorblind nor inherently segregationist mm-hmm. but governments you are you are the most important of these city splitting institutions historically
0: I think that's right historically certainly to get um the i think to 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 divide the number sheer numbers of colonial cities that um, across asia africa um even the western parts of the of the north of north america australia all those really took huge amount of government agency And i should qualify that um it's not always uh that governments are passing laws to create these divided cities um they are they're, they're using um you know, they're using a variety of different coercive means in addition to the law. In fact, the law and uh, legislation wasn't used as a segregated device really effectively until the late 19th century. And some might even argue that by creating legal forms, you actually make segregation weaker, uh, or at least more vulnerable to attack. Um, And, uh, you know, in, in some cases, I think that was that was also that was also true. That's why a lot of Colonial governments didn't want to pass laws precisely because they could get segregation in, in other ways. Um, but governments, I think, you know, they spearheaded the, the um, they spearheaded the, the move. They also um, eventually provided the power that intellectuals needed when they were proclaiming the need for segregated cities. Sometimes they worked; these intellectuals worked within government. Sometimes they worked outside of it, often and back and forth. Um, but they ultimately required. A government forced to do that. And, and, you know, things like the policy, the British Empire's policy, um, segregate African cities because, um, they thought that this would keep malaria from, um, you know, infecting the colonial officials. Uh, those were official, official policies and, uh, they were very, very effective and very important, uh, in segregating uh, cities all across. That's not to say though that the other two forms of institutions aren't important. Um, I think, I think the next, you know, when you talk about governments, the obvious next step is, well, what about markets? Are these things, uh, is there, is there a, um, market, um, interest in these kinds of things? And the answer is very, very mixed. Uh, when you look at the various different kinds of capitalist interests that, um, that surface in cities during the modern era, Merchants, mercantile capitals were the, were the first ones. And they had, on one hand, they, you know, the, the, in fact, the first segregated city was run by a mercantile company, uh, the British East India Company. On the one hand, they, um, they really, you know, their main point, point was to have a port there and a place where they could gather goods and uh, so they could buy goods uh, from this area and then uh, ship them away. And that's why they needed this concentrated zone of, of um, you know, human contact. And in a sense, what they really wanted was as many Asians as possible to live as close as possible to where they were. Uh, on the other hand, they also knew that those Asians could pose a threat um, so if they wanted their city to stay in place, they needed a certain uh, walls so ultimately they it was it was about creating city, creating a, a zone of agglomeration of bringing people together um, but it was also a, a way of kind of uh, you know pulling at the same time that you push you kind of push me, pull, pull you kind of. Situation that that created that they created. Um, uh, Elsewhere, though, for example, uh, the British government in Nigeria really wanted to separate districts for whites and blacks. But the merchants, the British merchants who lived in those cities, were very much opposed to those arrangements and and wanted to be close as possible to their clients, intermediaries, so on and so forth. (laughs) So they were often against it. Um, Gigantic industrial capitalist firms. wanted their workers to get to the factory on time. They didn't necessarily want, uh, you know, uh, buffer zones that the workers had across that could often get them there late. Uh, in Johannesburg, for example, they uh, created various different forms of segregation that were more t- t- attuned to the um, to the needs of, of working, uh, getting their workers close, uh, close by. The gold mines, for example, in Johannesburg had... Uh, same sex, same uh, race compounds where the black workers would live, but the other businesses in town were opposed to sending um, all the black uh, inhabitants of town to a location that was fifteen kilometers away on a rather poorly maintained tra- tra- uh, train line. Because the workers never came into into town, so they often were actually would buck the segregationist so you can see, uh, there's there's no real clear uh, consensus on that on that side. The real estate industry uh, is the place where ultimately the racial segregation and capitalist interests eventually came to be more aligned, but only in certain kinds of uh, societies. Um, in societies like uh, like uh, say British India, where, uh, as I've already mentioned, you know. Uh, there are Indians with vast amounts of money who <laughs> could very well easily buy uh, houses in Whitetown and, and certainly did on a regular basis. It wasn't really great to have a law that said it would have been impossible impo- really to pass a law that say you can't, you can't live there, uh, though they tried in various different places um, and, and, and got tremendous pushback. Uh, on the other hand, in a place like South Africa or the United States, where the white residents are there <clears throat> permanently, Again, unlike the white residents in, in say, Calcutta or Bombay, uh, the white residents are there permanently, and they want to invest in real estate, and um, they, you know, they want their generations to inherit this real estate. Um, there, the idea that, um, that Africans or African-Americans um, could bring down the value of the surrounding property um, by moving into a white neighborhood. That caught on in a very big way. And what that did was to create a kind of market and racialized market incentive. Um, that is, the value of the property had a racial component to it. And when you did that, then you created a market dynamic that uh, was very, very powerfully segregationist, uh, right. like elsewhere. And so that's, that's really why we, I mean, I think it's, it kind of underlies. Under underlays, you know, the segregation we have today in the United States—that that, that basic idea, which is something that's impossible to legislate against—you can't say, "Tell you know, white people don't believe that black people are going to bring your property values down," um, or uh, and in fact, you know, what what's going on there really in those cases is that um, property values are going down because whites leave, thinking that they or thinking that their neighbors are going to believe that, in fact, their property values are going to down. It's a kind of average opinion about what the average opinion is going to be that uh, causes this thing to, to happen. Um, and once they flee, they create less demand and uh, for, for the neighborhood. And once the demand goes down, the price actually does go down housing. So it's, it's, a, it's a real devilish, um, really devilish kind of dynamic. Um, and... It's, it's very very hard to
1: stop. All right. Well, so your your story takes us uh, around the world, mm-hmm. um, and you have this argument that, that there's a sort of uh, a line that we can trace from from region to region, uh, following these ideas and these practices. So why don't you uh, take us through some of that? Okay. Yeah. So um, this is kind
0: of uh, kind of an interesting trajectory because when we think of racism, we usually think of Uh, kind of slavery in the Atlantic world, the Western world. Um, And uh, to some degree, that's that's certainly accurate that racism uh, and race had tremendous impact on the the Western world. Um, But as far as the cities go, it's actually during that, uh, that, uh, slavery actually created uh, an impetus away from, uh, from segregation. There had been some segregation in places like Mexico, Um, that had been ordered by the king of of Spain. That began to disintegrate when you got slaves moving in, mostly because you needed to control those slaves uh, in a much more intense way than you could if you had them in a separate neighborhood. If you put them in a separate neighborhood, slavery was not going to last long. Uh, Slaves um, would use that um, enforced uh, closeness to mount all kinds of rebellions and your whole system would go down quickly. So the slave regimes really started from the beginning uh, to legislate that people that their slaves slave need to live in the houses of the wealthiest people, that is the slave owners slave um, owners, not uh, not separate from them. So there Right there is a big, huge area where segregation took a lot longer to come. Took a lot longer to come to South Africa slave society and the United States, ironically, than it did um, to everywhere else. So where did it really happen? Well, it really started in, um, as I've already in implied, in, in Asia and in, in the East, um, and it was in a complicated relationship with ideas about um, color and race that had that were in the process of forming in the Atlantic world, but. Um, when it came to actually dividing a city and then calling one side white town and one side black town, that was uh, only plausible in Asia where the the vast bulk of the population was free and where um, slavery was not as much of a major part of the economy, important part of the economy, not not the central part. Um, And uh, where, um, as I said, this kind of push-me-pull-you dynamic between merchant mercantile companies and their Indian intermediaries, the, uh, took place, where they were nervous about Indian armies, where the, the demographic um, regime was quite different from in the Americas where uh, uh, there was very small numbers of white settlers and gigantic and increasing um, urban populations as opposed to the Americas where the, popula- the local populations declined. Um, all of these things led for a different, very different kind of politics the kind of urban encounter, if you want to call it that, and um, in those places that 's when it really got going so the the idea of race was then applied to this color scheme uh, as time went on, especially in the british empire first uh, then and, that, and, and, and once once the British began conquering India, they really began what I call the first surge of, segrega- of racial segregation where they, where they created one hundred and seventy five um, uh, sort of um, what I call what, what they, they called stations. You could also call them um, uh, yes, the, the, the stations of the of the British Empire. These these very small military civil bases, administrative bases, often a couple miles outside of the the main cities of India when they when they would conquer them. And these uh, these spread from ultimately from Afghanistan down to the Malay Peninsula. Uh, 175 of these, and that that's kind of the first first surge, mostly about an imperial administration again. So there's the government really pushing hard. Uh, though questions of real estate came in, the market came in, and definitely questions of, of, sort of the sanitation um, and public health also came in. Then um, the next big surge came because Western empires, led by Britain again, wanted to get in access to the Chinese market. And the way they did that first, you know, the British first set up Singapore to rival the Dutch so they could get into the East uh East Um, China Seas, uh, South China Seas, East China Seas. Uh, Then they uh, launched this um, notorious campaign to flood China with opium uh, that led to war in the uh, 1830s and 40s that uh, opened up Chinese ports. And when they did that, they they encountered other traditions of segregation that had been in existence in China. The Chinese emperor and the British negotiated to create this kind of concession system uh, where there would be these British and French and uh, other international concessions inside Chinese cities. Um, that also opened up another kind of uh, uh, another segregationist dynamic that came because uh, the, the treaties allowed more Chinese people to move outside of China, and they, they began to flood across the Pacific uh, Rim, to various different gold mining towns at first, and then to other cities that, that came up at, in the wake of that. And in those areas, there was a different dynamic where uh, Chinese migrants were running up against white um, settlers who were coming in equal surges <laughs> towards these shores of demographic surges and where whites um, <coughs> tried to, um, often in cases, launch uh, violent attacks against the Chinese populations. Chinese populations tended then to defensively uh, gather in certain parts of the city. Uh, Creating the first Chinatowns, some of them, you know, the largest Asian cities outside of China, uh, most importantly, San Francisco. And so that was kind of the third, I I lumped this all together as this kind of the second surge, this opening of China that uh, created segregation of cities in Southeast Asia as well as um, around the Pacific Rim. Uh, And then in the 1890s, things went really kind of haywire uh, when uh, the plague. Uh, first came to Hong Kong, one of these Chinese uh, concession. Well, it was a British city that was very much the, one of the most segregated towns in um, in Asia. But um, <coughs> the plague came uh, to of, of, to an area of Hong Kong um, that was uh, largely Chinese, and uh, the Chinese got more or less. Became uh, known as the vector for plague and uh, were, were seen as the, the, the main threat that whites faced living in that city, and so the word segregation for the first time actually got used at this point for the practice of taking plague victims and putting them into various different kinds of uh,
1: divided or separated areas. Um, and uh, yeah, we hear that. And this had to do. And this had to do with you know the fact that we have these large uh, populations that. Our workforces and they're often crowded into these slums, and, right. the, and this is part of a larger problem with the mass urbanization, right? That these places become known as, as uh, a dens of disease because there's no sanitation system or anything right. else to sort of public any sort of public health control, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. It's a, it's a it's a global phenomenon. Uh, in the I mean, you rightly point out that you know the slu- creation of slums in working class uh, districts is is a, is a, is a uh, we- Pan-Western, pan-imperial phenomenon of this time. Uh, the only difference in this, in the case of Hong Kong, was that the, war, the, the vocabulary race could give you completely free reign in in, uh, in a place like Hong Kong, where as back in London, you, know, you might call the, the working class districts the, the darkest England and various different use of various different other kind of racial. Um, uh, Terms for it, but uh, referring to where the Irish lived. Right? The Irish, yeah, yeah. exactly. So this, this language was very, it was very uh, translatable into back and forth between a kind of class or a race politics. Not, it's not very really clear exactly where one began, and when one ended. Um, but uh, place like Hong Kong, uh, you know, really created a sense that you know it's the Asians, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the non-Westerners who are who are creating problems. Uh, we need to segregate them and not just spread like wildfire because. The plague. They couldn't. They had no idea why the plague was there, uh, and they had no idea about the flea vector or the the, the rat vector. At the time, uh, they discovered it in Hong Kong, but it took a while. And so they started doing, um, you know, they started doing things that basically made the plagues spread even further, including scaring all the um, residents of a place like Hong Kong or Bombay by forcing them into segregation camps. People when that, when that when that happened, people would just leave the city. When they left the city, they take the plague with them, and the countryside was getting even worse. Worse off. Um, so you know things like that. Uh, it was a disaster of a public health uh, campaign. But every time, everywhere the plague and these rats and the fleas um, went, so did the idea of segregation. So it went it went uh, eastward towards uh, across the Pacific to Honolulu. San Francisco had you know yet another attempt at a segregation ordinance around 1900. Uh, Went westward throughout India um, into South Africa, where the plague was the first main reason why uh, why, um, British authorities there began to divide places like Johannesburg and Durban and Cape Town, and then uh, West Africa. And then even the the, the logic of this all um, translated into other diseases. So the malaria in West Africa was a clear uh, clear, uh, pretext for for segregationism. And then um, in In places like Baltimore, which passed the first segregation ordinance in the United States in 1910, I should say, the first segregation ordinance on the East Coast of the United States in 1910, that was tuberculosis and the fear of tuberculosis coming out of the black neighborhoods was was a major factor in in the campaigns for that legislation. So that's, the, that's what I call segregation mania. It was just fear of disease, not knowing what diseases, how diseases um, really spread, but basically coming to a kind of racialized theory of, of this spread and then creating a segregation. Meanwhile, also, uh, the urban planning movement was, was beginning to develop, and uh, planners were professionalizing. Um, and they, they, too, wanted just cities to be more sanitized, but they had other uh, ideas in mind as well. Uh, including, you know, um, how do you develop a, a beautiful capital for um, Western empires in places like Africa and Asia? And um, the, the two classic examples of their uh, their contribution to the spread of segregation, I call it a fourth surge, the, the surge of, um, of segregation uh, that's related to various kinds of um, you know, planning devices um, would be uh, cities like Rabat in, in Morocco or New Delhi in, in India, where uh, planners deliberately uh, divided, set out divided cities. Uh, often, in cases like uh, New Delhi, it was a very, very, uh, um, it was a very, very elaborate five or six uh, zone system for various different ranks as well as colors of people. Um, in, in Rabat, um, it was clearly creating a whole new town uh, that, would, that would show off how great Euro- European Western urban planning was in comparison to the uh, Arab uh, Medinas and their very narrow, convoluted uh, street patterns and the building um, you know, that made commerce very difficult and so on and so forth. So the idea was, okay, we'll create these beautiful cities outside the um, existing Indian or the African uh, Arab cities, and those cities will show how how advanced the West is versus how um, sort of stuck in the, in the midst of time. Beautiful, sure, you know, brilliant in many ways, but definitely stuck in the past. Um, the other the Eastern or you know uh, West African civilizations were. So that's number four, and then the fifth is really what uh, creates apartheid in South Africa and. Segregation in the United States, and I argue that there's, there's reason to put those two together. Uh, both both of them, um, unlike any other form of racial segregation, actually outlive the, uh, the massive uh, anti-colonial civil rights, black liberation movements of the mid-20th century. They don't really outlive them, but they're still with us today. I mean, apartheid, Obviously, outlived it and eventually died, but now it has its own logic, um, actually quite similar to the United States logic in the United States. Um, but the, the the main thing is to, to include. The reason I include those two together is that they actually have lots of things in common that they all that they both imported mostly from Britain, but also from other places of Europe um, to uh, put themselves into into into, into place. And those things include. Things like restrictive covenants, which were so important both South Africa and the United States in the early years, to, to kind of um, to kind of become a, a kind of main tool, a thing that people fought for when they were thinking about people fighting for segregation. Um, then uh, there were also zoning laws, which um, were used very effectively in the United States and South Africa. Uh, in, or racial purposes, even if they weren't always necessarily put into place with like explicitly racial logic. For example, you know the idea in the United States that only um, apartment buildings that, that, that sorry apartment buildings could be zoned out of entire municipalities in the suburbs. This meant that you know the renters couldn't come into the suburbs as easily. It meant that African American renters couldn't come into the suburbs. Um, Public housing and slum clearance policies, both are very, very closely linked. Um, get rid of the slum, well, okay, get rid of the slum and put people in public housing, well, which slums are we going to go after and where are we going to put the public housing once we clear the slums um, to put people in? That's an easily, uh, that's a, those two policies in, in tandem are very easily used to, to create you know racial boundaries in both the U.S. and South Africa. And then um, ultimately, in some ways, the most important were these uh, very technical, but uh, just enormously uh, enormously important um, first-time homebuyer mortgage support programs. Um, and these got their initial inspiration in Britain uh, from the Building and Loan Society movement, which tried to create uh, mortgages that were more accessible to working people. Uh, once they were brought to the South African United States um, as state uh, programs, um, they were also used to, you know, to promote white settlement in certain parts of the of the, of the city. Uh, they were also used uh, and and to create divestment in other parts of the city. Almost, you know, heavily uh, focused on black areas and the, the whole redlining um, maps of the United States, uh, which were so famous and justly like, rightly so, um, came out of uh, you know basically a a non-racial law that was meant to help people get homes or keep, uh, buy new homes during the depression, try to stimulate the economy, um, but which was impl- which was actually um, put into place um, in a very much discriminatory manner, uh, deliberately so, uh, by the by the Federal Housing Administration um, in the 1930s, and then most more importantly in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, um, early 60s. Uh, and um, which was also uh, copied by the Veterans administration, uh, actually, the similar very similar housing policies were also in place in South Africa, and they were created they created the northern suburbs of Johannesburg, for example, they' were so famous um, and uh, so those things were very, very similar. The only big difference, of course, is that in the United States we tried segregation laws, but the African-American civil rights movement was able to mobilize against them very early on. In 1917, they had the great victory in, uh, in Buchanan versus Worley in the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court you know, declared uh, neighborhood segregation laws um, unconstitutional. In South Africa, no such thing happened. Um, in fact, just the opposite happened. There were precedents, legal precedents. There was no constitutional check against them. Um, uh, and those kinds, those precedents encouraged segregationists to ask more leg legislation. And over the course of the early 20th century, they just got more and more and more complex, more complex laws to do more, um, you know, create more, uh, create more color lines all across the city, uh, all across the cities of South Africa, culminating, of course, in the, in the, uh, most infamous of all, the Group Area Act of 1950. So yeah. there you have the there you have kind of the, the
1: overall sweep of how this stuff spread. The the the, uh, the chapters on uh, Chicago and uh, Johannesburg are, are striking because it it goes back to the you know, point you begin with is that uh, these things take place in all styles of government and the line between de jure and de facto. Uh, however legitimate it is and in other circumstances often on, at this massive you know bird 's eye view uh makes little sense right i mean i think
0: uh, yeah my my opposition to the de jure de facto uh, distinction it mostly has to do with the de facto side it' it 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 tends to imagine that okay so there's the de jure yeah i can understand that there's segregation by, you know, explicit government regulation, uh, uh, legislation, sorry, that, that sounds like de jure to me, but um, if everything else is de facto, that is, it just happens because it's a fact or because it's there, uh, then that just um, uh, completely obscures the, uh, the uh, political power that was arrayed in various different kinds of institutions, not just the government, uh, to, to put these kinds of things into place. And, You know, to to somehow excuse that whole area. I think it does often become um, an excuse. Oh, it's just a fact, though. It's okay. Somehow, um, you know, that's just it's voluntary, or it's just you know, it's just there. There's no real injustice being committed here. Um, This is kind of innocent. Uh, That 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 causes a major major problem for me. Um, I think we really need to look at segregation of cities in terms of the many institutional vectors in which which uh, which create them and the very you know, striking collective power that's put behind these uh, these initiatives. So um, I would say, de jure, okay, that helps a little bit, but don't call the rest de facto. <laughs> you know, it's not it's just something that sort of automatically appears. We have, to, we have to have to make it happen. And people people do. All
1: right. So if if this is if segregation is this product, uh, and to a significant degree of the rise of th- Modern Western colonialism. Um, what what is what does this story tell us for the, where we are now? You, you know, you end the book talking about the, the resistance to this global legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can take us out by talking a little bit about where those movements failed, where they succeeded, and and what that's left us with. Yeah. Well, it's a
0: little it's a little dispiriting, um, but I'll try to end this on an optimistic <laughs> note as, as I possibly can. <laughs> I mean, so the nationalist movements that got rid of the colonial, uh, the formal colonial uh, empires, uh, were obviously um, very, uh, I mean, they, they pretty much uh, got rid of the white town, black town tradition that it got started back in 1700. Um, on the other hand, uh, the the movements often devolved into authoritarian movements of the elite um, or during the Cold War, uh Outside powers often made sure that the elite gained power, and um, and they, just like their imperial uh, rivals, um, uh, put into place various different kinds of city splitting schemes that were meant to, to uh, you know, keep the keep the, uh, the power of the new elites in, in in place. And so you get you know dramatic um, instances of class segregation all across. What became known as the Third World, I guess now it's called uh, the very variegated developing world, um, and uh, you know, real estate in- interests uh, were certainly a big part of that. So were um, various kinds of, of public health campaigns, just like in, in previous times, and so on. There's a lot of, a lot of. Uh, Recycling of, of old imperial policies thrown in there. Um, anyway, you can sort of imagine uh, most of most of the megacities of the United, of the uh, of the world are located in these developing countries, and most of them are um, quite deeply um, and painfully segregated uh, by class. In the United States and South Africa, you know the the opposition movements were very very powerful, very uh, very uh, creative. In South Africa, ultimately, uh, because of its heavily heavy relation, uh, um, reliance on these um, legislated uh, measures like the Group Areas Act, um, in some ways they were in some ways they were very very difficult because of course they mobilized a huge amounts of armed force to keep them in place. On the other hand. They were also became clear targets uh these laws became clear targets and so ultimately the you know the, the anti apartheid movement in South africa was able to really mobilize a global coalition against apartheid in the eighties and finally uh, you know ended apartheid and forced the group areas act uh to be uh to be cancelled um so that's a that was a, that was an enormous obviously an enormous victory um unfortunately um you know, in both the United States and South Africa, no matter how powerful the opposition was, there are still gigantic forces at play, split the continue to split these cities, and, and the real estate real estate uh, dynamics are probably the most important um, in, in both cases, but. Because you know the government's still involved because the government doesn't regulate these things, it doesn't also put the kind of money that would be necessary to kind of uh, bring housing discrimination suits um, on the a, on a level on the on on sure, sheer sure quantity that would be necessary to even make a dent in these um, gigantic um, you know divides. And we're also in the United States in particular. We're retreating from public housing, which you know. Doesn't have to be a segregationist uh, policy. It was in the United States most of the middle 20th century, but it doesn't have to be. It could be a major way to uh, slow down things like gentrification, to create new um, integrated communities, to try out um, different kinds of um, forms of integration. But that that hasn't happened. We've completely lost that interest in that. Um, so ultimately, in some ways, you know, as I put at the end of the at the end of the book, you know, the, the forces. Of uh, segregation worldwide are still pretty much, you know, operate uh, operate the commanding heights of, of the urban of urban politics. We still um, there, we still have the main the, the main things um, the main the main sources of power in urban space are, are still there, uh, still in place, and still segregationist. Um, that said, I think I think you know I think we probably know more about how to desegregate cities, how to make them more equal. Um, in our own era than we've ever known since we first started creating cities back in back in, the, um, in Mesopotamia. I think we do know that um, you know we can, that density can be the solution to some of these problems. That um, you know, things like road boundaries and so on can keep um, at least keep the disadvantages of segregation at uh, at least mitigate them. We may not be able to uh, force white people to um, invite. Huge numbers of African Americans to live in their communities, um, but we can at least create cities that are where the opportunities are more spread out, so that uh, no matter what community you live in, you still have equal access to to jobs, uh, to, um, you know the the kind of things that give you a healthy life, to uh, education, to uh, income, and obviously wealth creation, which is so important uh, and um, so we could, we could do more uh, along those lines. I think we know quite a bit more of how to do that. Uh, so, you know, we're kind of in this, uh, bittersweet parad- bittersweetly paradoxical place as far as segregation goes. We've got a lot of it still. Um, in some ways we've got it in ways that are very difficult to, to attack. Uh, on the other hand, we know it better than we've known it before. And, um, hopefully that knowledge over time will, um, be able to to to, um, to inspire you know movements of urban planners, of grassroots activists, of academics, of, um, uh, of people uh, you know people who of uh, transportation um, authorities, city governments, uh, national governments, state governments, so on and so forth, in ways that will at least begin to, to mitigate the, the very severe effects that continue to be um, associated with. With, um, with the color line in the United States and, and everywhere.
1: Well, you know, reading your book, um, there these lines go everywhere. And, uh, uh, you know, if there is a hope for, for change in that, you know, I think it's really important work like this that, that gives you a sense for how paradoxical and how, how many different forms it can take and what the, the common patterns are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really quite striking when you take a, a global view. Um, so, uh, what is next on the agenda? Are you uh, planning something similar for your next project? What are you working on now?
0: Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how um, these settler societies, which are a subset of all these you know, various different societies that uh, um, uh, that, that were segreg- segregation uh, flourished over the course of the last two, two centuries. I'm really interested in seeing how these settler societies work um, more, in more detail. I mean, this, this book, the segregation book was really a, an invitation to all kinds of projects, to all kinds of scholars. There's all different kinds of, um, connections, and as you say, the lines go everywhere. Each one of those lines needs to further investigation. But the one I'm most interested in, in pursuing myself is this one, um, about how, where, how it was that different settler societies, um, Treat, you know, treated their cities in different ways. I'm really interested, for example, I'm, um, I've, I've done a lot on the South African-U.S. comparison, and that will definitely be part of the, the project, but I'm interested in, oh, so, you know, French um, French people settled in Algeria, and they created yeah, they're definitely a segregated city, but it definitely looks a lot different, and the, the feel of the rhetoric and so on is very different, and I'd like to understand that better. And then I think that really, really, we all really need to... Um, uh, at this particular moment, one of them one of the places that needs to be really investigated in terms of segregation and where it 's been so much part of the political rhetoric now is is the israel palestine uh, situation, which is also a settler society, very complex and interesting settler society um, uh, where uh, the techniques of segregation and state run segregation um, are very very sophisticated and about all kinds of new innovations. Um, that would have made some of the apartheid engineers, frankly, and <laughs> definitely some of the segregations in the United States um, quite jealous, I would think. Um, and this is, of course, a, uh, an issue that has been very, very hotly debated in Israel and in the, uh, in the, in the world, you know, whether or not a kind of apartheid system is coming into place there. But it strikes me as uh, equally interesting to talk about, well, how is, this, how is this system connected to all the others? Not whether or not it it's some sort of ideal, typical definition of what apartheid is or segregation is, but just what, how does it fit into the bigger, broader question of how we uh, use cities for purposes of, of domination, settlements, occupation, and so on. So those
1: are some of the questions I'll be trying to follow up on in the upcoming years. Well, I look forward to reading that. That sounds fascinating. Uh, I want to thank you again for sitting down with us and talking to us today. Encourage everyone listening to go out and buy the book. Carl, thanks so much. Hope to talk to you soon. Thank you very much.